You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It's The Big Take from Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, $1 trillion. That's how much the biggest U.S. banks made in just the past decade. Yeah, you heard that right. And if a trillion dollars sounds like a lot, well, it definitely caught the eye of two of my colleagues here at Bloomberg. Reporters Max Abelson and Hannah Levitt cover the world of Wall Street day in and day out. But that enormous sum made even them wonder, how did the banks, which have always been profitable, suddenly become much, much more profitable in such a short time? They're here with me now to tell us what they found out. Hannah Levitt, Max Abelson, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So you've written this big story in which you discovered that the big banks have made a trillion dollars in profit, not revenue, but profit, in the last decade. And as I was thinking about this, I kind of had, I was mixed feelings because I was like, well, that's surprising. But then I sort of thought, well, that's not so surprising because they're the banks. So what is it about a trillion dollars that caught your attention? For one thing, Wes, it's an extremely big number. So I feel like I have to be my true self and tell you how superficial journalists are. And we love enormous round numbers. You shouldn't be surprised because we're living through an era of inequality. We're living through an era of corporate profits, for sure. But I think, you know, even though Hannah and I have been covering the big banks for years now, there was also an element of our mouths fell open when we realized the scale of the profits is one thing. You know, it's just such a huge number. But the other thing to keep in mind is that this industry has faced just one scandal after another, starting with the kind of Ur scandal of the 2008 financial crisis. But they just find new ways year in and year out to make an astonishing amount of profit, even when compared with the fact that we're kind of living in it, an era of giant tech profit. You know, Wall Street is right behind them and scandals can't stop them. It's quite an incredible machine. Hannah. Max made an interesting point, which is they, the banks sort of started out in the last decade just crawling out of the global financial crisis, which obviously kind of shook the foundations of the banking industry. And then layered on top of that were all these new government regulations that the banks said were going to crush them and hamper their ability to profit. And yet they came back in a big way despite all of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll note that Max and I did the story when the big six banks hit 100 billion in annual profit. That was in 2018. 
the two of us teamed up for a story on that. So really, if you think about that, that was kind of that first landmark right at the end of 2018. And now we're already at a trillion for a decade. That shows you just, you know, how lucrative these past couple of years have been as well. That's a really good point. I kind of want to dig into that. It was something that stood out in your story was there seemed to be this kind of slow recovery and then boom. And you write about a couple big things that sort of were like rocket fuel behind the banks. One fun thing about writing about Wall Street is that you're never really just writing about six big banks. I mean, even apart from the fact that Wall Street includes you know all sorts of fun stuff like private equity giants and hedge fund billionaires, the story of Wall Street and the story of Wall Street profits is the story of the American government and regulators and politicians. And, you know, we're not kidding around when we say that our beat is like the landscape of money and power because it really is power with a capital P. Donald Trump started campaigning by, I mean, essentially making fun of the banks. And I think either implicitly or explicitly kind of threatening to break them up. Instead, though, when Trump took the White House, he put two former Goldman Sachs executives, Stephen Mnuchin and Gary Cohn, and he put them in charge of an overhaul that transformed taxes in this country, especially transformed taxes for corporate giants. And I think Hannah and I would be hard-pressed to find something as powerful as what Trump did to corporate taxes, because you can see the banks go from getting used to paying, you know, call it three out of $10 in taxes. Now they're paying less than one in five. That's not to make it sound like that Wall Street didn't do anything of their own volition to make that money, but it was a huge, huge moment in this decade. And how big are we talking about in actual dollars between before the big Trump tax cuts and after in terms of profit did that mean for banks? For 2018, the banks almost doubled the amount of profit that they made in 2017. That's pre-tax cut to post-tax cut. Correct. You can see just about everything for the banks transform right around 2018. Look, you know, if Donald Trump weren't in office and if that tax cut didn't happen, would the big banks have found a way to make a lot of money? I'm sure they would have. But you can really see the big banks go from making a lot of money in the beginning of our 10-year period to making a lot of money. We're talking here about total assets. We're talking about the profits. 2018 isn't the be-all and end-all, but it's a kind of hinge moment where the banks go from lucrative to so lucrative that they make this trillion-dollar sum over 10 years. So the tax cut was one of the big things that helped boost banks' profits. What's the other one? After the 2018 tax cuts, we had COVID just a couple years after that. And it's a little hard to remember now, but the chaos and the confusion and the desperation of those early months, I think for just about everybody in the world, had an odd parallel state in financial markets where things were actually looking pretty good in a way. And the COVID era, thanks not only to trading desks either embracing or really, really relying on volatility to make money, but in addition to that, you know, you had central banks around the world buying up assets at a scale, you know, we've never seen in, in world history, trillions and trillions of dollars of assets bought up by central banks. And what that allowed was financial markets to breathe a sigh of relief. I think there would have been real financial and economic mayhem had that not happened. And you see a boom, not just in 2020, when there could have been a collapse, but in 2021, when it's paired with a kind of a new kind of deal-making boom, you know, it created a level of profit that overshadowed anything Hannah and I looked at. 2021 was so profitable for the six banks that if memory serves, they made more than they had in 2013 and 2014 put together. Yeah, I'll just jump in there and an interesting way of looking at it, although potentially slightly oversimplified, but 
COVID sets in, right, in March of 2020. And there was so much craziness in the market at the time. And also really bad outlooks as far as what was going to happen with, you know, the labor market and things like that. And so there's an immediate boost to volatility. And that means that banks are making money on their trading desks. So that happens. Then things calm down a bit and there's a deal-making boom. And that's debt underwriting, equity underwriting, and an advising on uh, mergers and acquisitions. And then we get to last year and all the money that the banks, not all of it, but a good chunk of it that the banks had set aside in 2020 for potentially soured loans when things were looking really bad, those soured loans in large part did not materialize. So then profit was boosted last year, 2021, by bringing those reserves back in and that flowed through to the bottom line. So then you look at, you know, JP Morgan, the biggest bank, made the most money in the history of American banking last year, 2021, as a result of all of those things. You've mentioned several times the big six. Can you name them for me? Absolutely. JP Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley. JP Morgan, which is the most profitable bank, how much more profitable is it than, say, the others on the list? Is there a big jump down from them? You know, it's funny you say that because at the beginning of this era, that wasn't true. Wells Fargo was the only bank among the six pulling in more than $20 billion a year. And lo and behold, they hit all these troubles. A lot of them self-inflicted. Some of them self-inflicted. That's exactly right. I mean, who better to tell you than Hannah Levitt? Hannah, what was Wells up to? So if you rewind 10 years, Wells Fargo was at the top of its game. They were a mortgage giant, and they were really, um, at one point, they were making one out of every three home loans in the United States. They were the most profitable. They were the most valuable. Warren Buffett was still all in on them. So all these things. And then in 2016, a series of scandals really erupted into the public eye, um, and it was over these fake accounts that employees under pressure to meet sales goals had created on behalf of customers without their knowledge or consent. And that's what kicked it off. And then from there, scandals popped up in other business lines as well, in mortgage, in auto. Virtually every major business line was impacted by this. And they wound up paying massive fines. Oh, yeah. There was a recent Consumer Financial Protection Bureau one it was $3.7 billion, and $1.7 billion of that was a fine. And then the other two was remediation, so making customers whole. And you know there was a $3 billion one with the Justice Department and the Securities and Exchange Commission, and those are not the only ones, but those are the bigger ones. So at some point in the last decade, J.P. Morgan took the crown as the biggest by market cap and as the most profitable. Market cap, uh, an extremely fancy phrase that means market capitalization, the, the total value of every public company. And what is it that J.P. Morgan's business did that made it leap ahead of the others? Well, it's gigantic, for one thing. Size is a part of it. Is that fair, Anna? Yeah, that's a huge part of it. I mean, they bought Bear Stearns in the crisis. They brought Washington Mutual in the crisis. So there you have J.P. Morgan. Can we round out the top three and just talk a little bit about what's different about each of these banks and their approach? One fun way to think about it is that Wall Street makes so much money and has made so much money over the last 10 years that very few, I mean, really a handful of companies make more than J.P. Morgan and Bank of America and even Wells Fargo. Those are the three that make the most. But Citigroup and Goldman and Morgan Stanley aren't far behind. 
I think for listeners, it might be easiest to think about it that Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs are the kind of old line, classic Wall Street institutions, even though they're banks technically now. JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank of America does much more consumer work. Yeah, absolutely. So JP Morgan, it's the biggest on Main Street and it's the biggest on Wall Street as far as trading, you know, and then you can look at something like Wells Fargo, which is more, much more heavily weighted toward the consumer. And then you can look at Goldman and Morgan Stanley that are very heavily weighted toward investment banking. So if you think about, you know, JP Morgan as massive in both, and then, you know, each of those that I just listed competes primarily, you know, in the case of Wells on the consumer side and in the case of Goldman and Morgan Stanley on the investment banking and trading side. Hannah and Max, please stick around. We'll continue this conversation after the break. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So the banks, no matter what approach they took, whether they were focused on, you know, your savings account down the street, or if they were focused on putting together big mega deals for corporations, there was a lot of money to be made no matter what. But don't forget, you know, just how hairy it got there, Wes. I mean, I'm, my mind turns to 1MDB, the famous Malaysian kleptocracy case. The former prime minister uh, was sentenced to prison for that. And Goldman Sachs raised billions of dollars for that deal that was then stolen by a group. We spoke to a former compliance executive at Goldman who talked about, like, the immense regret he has for not catching it, despite the work he and his colleagues put in. Then, obviously, there's Wells Fargo. But, you know... When the decade started, J.P. Morgan was kind of in the doghouse. Remember the phrase, the London whale? You know, it's kind of faded from memory now, but what went down with the London whale? What's a good way of describing it? So the London whale was basically a massive trading loss that J.P. Morgan suffered. Billions of dollars, multi-billion. First executives kind of dismissed it, and then it grew, and it grew even larger. And Jamie Dimon, the CEO and chairman of J.P. Morgan, was hauled before Congress for a hearing. And... It was really a big deal in post-crisis, but still banks facing a lot of backlash environment. And so that was kind of right before the decade that we're looking at here. So J.P. Morgan was fresh off that. And uh, as we mentioned, Wells Fargo was on top of the world. You know, hearing Hannah talk about London Well reminds me that the subject that we're reporting on here, you know, the scale of Wall Street profits, it's a fraught subject. I think that people who have a memory, you know, if not of Occupy Wall Street, you know, a memory of the 2008 financial crisis when the banks played a role in really threatening the global economic order. And I think that maybe some readers might, you know, cheer profits, especially if they're shareholders. But I'm sure there are readers who think, well, geez, how are the banks making this money? What are they risking? And I think there's a sense that you can't make this kind of money without a lot of risk. And I guess if we had a Wall Street executive here with us, they might point out that this was a pretty good decade from the perspective of public safety and soundness. You know, we're living through a kind of crazy financial hiccup right now, the collapse of crypto, but that's 
you know, that is not a threat to the big banks. It's gruesome, it's grotesque, but it's, we've seen crypto firms fail, but, you know, not the big banks. So I just want to point out that, you know, you don't have to be a defender of Wall Street to acknowledge that this decade was pretty good for the general banking system. I don't just mean the bankers who got to make money or, or even the shareholders who, who got to enjoy some of the profits. Nothing went quite so wrong in the last decade, um, unless, of course, you want to count, you know, the Wells Fargo retail scandal and, and lots of other things, too. So we've heard about how the banks made a lot of money in the last decade. But who benefited from all that profit? Who were the ones who, in classic Wall Street fashion, who were the winners and who were the losers? The obvious answer that jumps to mind is that the bankers benefited from the banks making this amount of money. You know, this is not a world where, you know, you get to be one of the very, very richest people on earth. Um, but it does mint a couple of billionaires like J.P. Morgan's head, Jamie Dimon, and, and former Goldman Sachs boss, Lloyd Blankfein. But, you know, by and large, what we're talking about here are bankers making um, sometimes millions and millions of dollars, thanks to Wall Street's good times. But speaking of a kind of larger group, bank shareholders benefited. An era of profit for any kind of public company benefits, you know, in most cases, public shareholders. And, you know, I think that that, on the one hand, that means a slightly bigger group if we're comparing it to the narrow range of bankers. But I think it's also important to point out that, you know, not everyone in this country owns stock and that in order to gain from the growth of corporate profit, you know, you have to have enough money to have savings and to own shares in the first place. So you could think of this as, as part of the much broader story of widening inequality in the country and around the world. Ironically, when we talk about making money on Wall Street and when we talk about, you know, even inequality in Wall Street, we're not really talking about the world's biggest winners. You know, I've been kind of, it's, it's like, I don't know, a combination of shocking and humbling over the years as a finance reporter to realize that, you know, you speak to these people that, you know, their, their paychecks dwarf ours and, you know, they, to all the world, they look like true winners, um, the, the winners of kind of the game of capitalism. But they themselves compare their checks to bigger ones than theirs. And the, the story of inequality in America is really lots of stories of different kinds of inequality. One of the kinds of inequality is that the really rich people have gotten much richer than the merely rich. And, you know, I can't tell you how often I've heard from wealthy people on Wall Street kind of feeling sorry for themselves because they're missing out on, you know, I don't know, the crypto boom or because tech executives are making more or because private equity, you know, billionaires are worth a hundred times more than they are. We're talking about wealth and we're talking about money, but I think it's helpful to point out that Wall Street is not the richest. In fact, compared to Apple, Apple alone, you know, Wall Street is a snooze fest. I want to say Apple made, I think, more than half a trillion dollars by itself over this decade when, you know, in order to reach a trillion, we combine these six banks. You know, the banks that are smaller than these mega banks that have gotten even larger over the past decade, right, and they have more money to use to bolster their offerings and compete in ways that these smaller banks can't because they're smaller and they make less money. And so when you look at the consolidation that's happened, you know, even if you go a level down from these giant banks that we're talking about that are the focus of our story, there's been a lot of consolidation even among the biggest regional banks. So I can think of, you know, BB&T and SunTrust merging to create Truist a few years ago. And the justification or part of the justification there and with a lot of these tie-ups is that it better enables them to spend more to compete. 
has it been just good for Americans that banks are making that much money? I think it might be too hard for Hannah and I to give you this really satisfyingly simple answer like, yeah, it's been awesome for America or no, it's terrible for America that Wall Street's doing so well. I think that, you know, you can have a optimistic view that to be on Wall Street is to allocate capital efficiently and it's to help businesses and it's to help people and that means helping Americans. But you can also be a little more cynical and I'm referring here not just to outsiders and critics, but you know, I've talked to people who've rose pretty high on Wall Street who leave with, you know, maybe a sense that what goes on it's not evil, but you know that it doesn't have the kind of meaning that they were searching for. I'm, I'm thinking here of a Wall Street veteran who's telling me kind of just the other day that you know he has a sense that trading, especially of derivatives back and forth, that amounts to very little at the end of the day. But you know, if one of his former trading colleagues heard him say that, he would have pointed out that it's what makes the world go around. And you know, if finance weren't doing it, it would be a big problem. I think a little bit of cynicism and a little bit of optimism about the meaning of these businesses is, is probably a healthy combination. Yeah, I'll just jump in there to say that, you know, if you subscribe to the argument that all this money that these big banks are making is the effect of a healthy economy over the past decade, then you could argue that it's a good thing. But if you subscribe to the argument that banks shouldn't be this big, banks shouldn't be too big to fail, if you will, then it wouldn't necessarily be a good thing. So yeah, I mean, to Max's point, I think I would defer to an actual philosopher on that, but there are interesting ways of looking at it. Although let me note, read our story because we did interview a philosopher, uh, an ethicist who, who used to be a partner at Goldman Sachs, but we'll leave the ethics and philosophy to him though. We'll be right back. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So, Henry, we're talking about the spectacular profits of banks. As Max, you know, mentioned, they aren't the biggest earners. The tech sector and other uh, really big corporations, they made even more. So where does the banking industry kind of sit in the pantheon of incredible profits? You know, that's a great question and one that I think has the potential to really bounce around in the coming years, right? Because you look at, you know, all that's happening with the economy right now with the Federal Reserve's rate hikes and persistent inflation, and also the decline of a lot of tech stocks and things like that. So there are multiple drivers that I think will determine the ultimate answer to that question. And also things like the banks are looking like they're in pretty good shape, regardless of, you know, any economic circumstances that might be coming our way. But time will tell as far as testing that. So I think that that remains to be seen. If the banks keep making this unhinged amount of money, we'll have a lot of fun next year. But if things sour and they start struggling, I mean, it'll be interesting for us in its own way. But if you want to trust analysts, you know, they're, they're just going to keep on making more money. 
Analysts think 2023 is going to be bigger than last year. And why do they say that? One key reason there is that when the Federal Reserve's interest rates go up, the banks make more money in something called net interest income, which is the amount that they are earning on the loans they made. So the interest that people are paying them on loans minus the interest that they're paying out on deposits. So we've already seen some of that in the third quarter. J.P. Morgan had its highest quarterly net interest income ever and rates have continued to go up, are expected to continue to go up. So we'll see some more of that. That'll be a big driver there. You know, coming out of COVID and the really high volatility there that boosted trading desks, there was executives and analysts and pretty much anyone you asked was saying, oh, at some point this will normalize. And what does normalize mean? It means it'll go down to levels. You know, if it normalizes to 2019 levels or something like that, then it goes back down to near the level of 2019. But then people were saying that was going to happen this year. And then Russia invaded Ukraine. And so there was a lot of volatility around that. And the banks have made a ton of money uh, on their trading desks this year. So if when there's a quote unquote normalization remains to be seen, but it certainly hasn't been this year. And I guess that's a good point when you talk about the difference between the banking industry and, say, the tech industry, where uh, when things are volatile, things are jumpy, that presents opportunities to buy and to uh, earn on the, the volatility for the banks. Whereas if things are volatile for the tech companies, you see they are getting hit pretty hard. And so they're certainly looking a lot worse at the end of this year, but the banks are looking just fine. Yeah, that's a good point, Wes. Maybe this is true of all journalists, but I feel like I'm an anxious person. When things are getting crazy, I get a little scared. When I die, I want to come back as Wall Street, you know, where volatility is, you know, something to be embraced. It's lucrative. It's not something to be afraid of. Anna Levitt, Max Abelson, thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you. Thank you. You can read Hannah and Max's story about Wall Street's runaway profits at Bloomberg.com. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Read today's story and subscribe to our daily newsletter at Bloomberg.com slash Big Take. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with questions or comments to Big Take at Bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is... Vicki Vergolina. Our senior producer is... Catherine Fink. Our producer is... Rebecca Chasson. And associate producer is... Sam Gebauer. Hilda Garcia. Is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.